Hello and welcome to this edition of the Neural Farm Podcast. My name is Dr. Colby Burns, Dr. Pharmacy. I'm your host. There's over 4 million podcasts in the United States. There's plenty of options out there. We're certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one. And we hope we can provide you with some informational value, entertainment value on this day. Um, today, we're going to be talking about ketamine. I have a couple of special guests with us today. We have Austin Rogers. He's the operations manager for Northwest Ketamine Clinics. They are in the Seattle, Tacoma, and Bellevue areas in Washington State. And we also have Sherry Thomas, the clinical director of Northwest Ketamine Clinics. Thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us, Colby. Thank you. I have a list of questions I have prepared for the clinic. talked about ketamine in the past, and I wanted to provide some more insights from a patient perspective of what to expect when you go to the clinic for an infusion and answer some frequently asked questions that we came up with to address um, some basics around ketamine therapy and some clinical information as well uh, for those in the healthcare field that might be interesting to know more about ketamine as myself. So the Northwest Ketamine Clinic has several protocols for ketamine. Um, Pretty interesting in my opinion. So I wanted to talk to Sherry a little bit about some of the various treatment protocols they have. There's two specific protocols on the website. I'll probably link to the website in the comments field of the podcast. Um, but the two main protocols was one for pain management and the other for uh, mood. So mood involves six infusions and pain four infusions. want to talk about there's other protocols mentioned too for holistic wellness, substance use disorder, and PTSD. And I just wanted to ask Sherry, uh, could you break down some of the protocols uh, for a listener, Sherry? Yeah. Um, so we do have quite a few uh, programs that we have at Northwest Ketamine Clinics. Our standard sort of ketamine program is a, a we call it a kind of like a stabilization series. And it is a series of two infusions uh, six total, but typically we do two each week for three weeks. And that just kind of really gets us to where we can um, identify more what uh, dose they should be at and when we're starting to see those changes. Um, and then we also offer what we call as a CAP program that's a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So that's for patients who really think that they need that more of that integration piece. Um, and they can actually have that with one of our therapists who are trained in integration. We also offer our pain infusions, which is a longer sort of exposure to ketamine um, over the course of four days. And then we also um, have our, what we call is our CAP program, which is a ketamine assisted therapy for substance use disorder. Um, and that actually is over four weeks a little bit different dosing with that, with our ketamine. Um, and that also includes some integration with our therapists along the way, longer integration uh, uh, sort of appointments with them. And then we also do offer for our patients that maybe just might be doing the standard ketamine program um, that they can add on a therapy session anytime they want, if they feel like it's needed. And then we also do offer a monthly integration group where uh, if patients want to kind of gather together within a group that's led by one of our therapists once a month as well. 
Great. Yeah, that's a lot of options for people and, and different protocols. Um, can you talk about how you develop some of these specific protocols, um, particularly sort of the six infusion regimen? I read a little bit more about the six infusion regimen and some of the studies, but uh, just wanted to ask how um, you arrived at that or why that's been come standard. Yeah, I, we are definitely an evidence-based company. And so uh, we really go off of the current data and that's kind of what the current data is showing is that this sort of exposure to ketamine, a little bit of a rest period exposure to ketamine, and that helps to really stabilize those symptoms with the neural connectivity that's happening in the brain. And for people that are the schedule won't allow them to complete all those sessions in the shorter amount of time. I assume there's flexibility with uh, being able to push it out a little bit longer if needed. Yeah. And, you know, some people, maybe it's hard for them to also take off that many days for that mm -hmm. many weeks. And so we have had patients, luckily our, our locations are within a fairly manageable area for most of our patients. And so sometimes one of our uh, clinics in Bellevue is actually open five days a week. And so we might have a patient that gets an infusion on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and maybe they complete that six series in a two week period. So yeah, we do try and accommodate some of those schedule um, needs of our patients. Yeah, that's great. And if a patient has completed, you know, the session gone through the treatment protocol, and they respond well, um, you know, a question that was brought up is when do you repeat ketamine sessions or do you find that maybe the same amount of people don't need to repeat it but if you do how when do you recommend the person comes back yeah that's a great question that's uh, we get that a lot from our patients and uh, you know what we see with our patients because like i said we are very uh, data driven we collect our own data and we look at that and so the average of our patients is around three months that they come back for what is called a maintenance infusion you know, and it also depends on how well the patient is doing outside of just using ketamine. If they're using other sort of tools in that toolbox to help with life and life stressors. Um, some of our patients, if they go through a traumatic incident or another very stressful time in their life, they might come back and see us a little more frequently to kind of almost get restabilized. Um, and then they might maintain it. I have patients that come in monthly. I have patients that I haven't seen for two years. And then all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I need to come back. I'm starting to feel a little down. So we recommend to our patients that maybe they get a mood tracker app on their phone and track it daily. And if they're starting to notice that they're having like four or five down days, or uh, maybe their moods change significantly for four or five days, it might be an opportune time to come in for a maintenance infusion. So four or five days consecutively, um, what mood tracker do you recommend? Well, I don't have one in particular because I think everybody's different. I've talked to some of our females who actually might track their cycle because they know that their mood really goes with that cycling. And so on some of those even cycle mood trackers, it will, or the like their menstrual cycle trackers, it will track their moods also with it. So they just can go along with that. Um, or there's, I just typically tell them, find one that's free and that looks appealing to you. Okay. Yeah. I was off, off the wall question there, but, uh, I was curious because there are just so many apps out there. Mm -hmm. How do you decide? There, 
there are a lot, you know, there's, there's certain ones that are geared towards anxiety, depression, PT. I mean, there's so many apps. I think they're making them every day. Um, and a lot of our patients, they don't need another app or another thing on their phone. Um, so we, you know, we offer them to take home like our PHQ, our GAD, our PTSD forms as well. And so they just kind of have that tool in their back pocket to kind of give themselves a score. They know where they started out, out with, um, and they work hand in hand with our NPs here to know like, okay, if I started at I'm just going to throw a, a number out there. If I started at 25, they'll work with the MP like, hey, when you feel yourself getting down to that 15, 12 mark, maybe think about coming back in or giving us a call and seeing if there's another tool that we can utilize to kind of prolong that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Obviously, there's other tools in your toolbox besides um, ketamine itself, too, is a good point to bring up. But for, you know, people that have tried those other tools and they haven't been successful and ketamine was, then see the argument for going back to it. Um, just, I don't think it's going to be different for every person is what I'm kind of hearing. There's no right. optimum amount of time. It should be repeated, which makes sense. Yeah. So I had asked um, Austin this question, but uh, Spravato was the FDA approved nasal spray form of ketamine, S-ketamine, the S-isomer. Uh, and I know that Johnson Johnson spent a lot of money on clinical trials, get it approved. Um, and I, a little bit easier to get it through insurance from what I've heard because it is FDA approved, but I still worked in a pharmacy um, in Centralia and we had a hard time getting these preauthorization claims approved. But why um, are you guys using Spravato or why have you decided to use just IV ketamine over Spravato? Great question. Yeah, we get that from our patients a lot. Um, the reason why I am not a fan of Spravato is because of the bioavailability, right? Like if you're going to pay your hard-earned money on something, why do you only want to be able to get up to 48% of it? Um, whereas IV ketamine, you're getting 100% bioavailable. So if you're going to go for this, you know, I, I think you have to give it the real, like, you want to get your money's worth. And, and we hear it from our patients quite a bit where they've done this bravado and they maybe felt it a little bit, but not near what they were hoping for. And then they come in and see us for IV and they're like, oh my gosh, that changed my life. Interesting. So some of these people didn't respond well to bravado, but they are responding a lot better to IV ketamine. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, if you're only yeah. getting 50% of the drug, basically, um, you're going to have to take a lot more to get to that availability that we can offer at a lower dose of ketamine when you're getting 100% of it through the IV. Yes, very true. And I think the reason ketamine is not being approved in itself, it really comes down to more of a financial, uh, there's no incentive for the manufacturers of ketamine being a generic drug to do those studies. Right. I mean, you guys would probably agree mm -hmm. that, yeah, Johnson Johnson just decided to spend a lot of money to study Spravato. And that's why I got the approval. Right. So what's, uh, what's your basic screening criteria used prior to patients initiating therapy? You know, we're, um, we want them to have at least failed one sort of modality. So whether that's that they've tried medication and it hasn't helped, or they've tried talk therapy and that hasn't helped or TMS or whatever that might be, we don't want to be necessarily the first stop because we do know it's expensive um, and so if there's a different way that we can 
um, help support the patients we do. Um, but, you know, a lot of our patients that we see, you know, SSRIs um, are just uh, with the side effects of them and everything else that comes with them. It's not friendly. It takes a long time to be to kick in um, and maybe they didn't respond and they just go on medication after medication. And that's what we normally see. And so we do with our screening process, we have a great intake team who um, talks to the patients first, sees if they are a good fit, and then they move them on for a free consultation with our nurse practitioners. And that's where we can um, look and see if they're medically fit for ketamine. Um, the sort of things that we look for on the medical aspect would be, you know, um, those that might be at a higher risk if they have any liver issues because ketamine is um, metabolized through the liver. So we look for that. Um, we also are mindful of if they have a history of schizophrenia, you know, or bipolar and they go more towards the mania side. Ketamine can make that mania worse or they can make that schizophrenia worse. So we have to be mindful of, it doesn't mean that if you have those, we're going to turn you away. We just want to see that they're stabilized and then, and then we'll do the ketamine with you. So your couple of your exclu main exclusion criteria are patients with schizophrenia or any history of psychosis or liver injury. Um, any restricted pharmaceuticals that you look for, if somebody's taking it, then you don't recommend ketamine for them. Well, and I have to say that it's really hard to not, because ketamine is such a safe medication, it's really hard to turn somebody away unless there's a huge history of psychosis. Yeah. We still treat schizophrenic patients who, who have been stabilized and maybe haven't had any of that psychosis for some time. Um, but some of the medications that we have to be a little more mindful of that some of the evidence is showing is that, that like benzodiazepines, um, may be a little bit more blocking the effectiveness of ketamine along with alcohol and marijuana. So typically what we ask of our patients is if they can avoid those around infusion times, that's helpful. So maybe like the day before, the day of, and the day after. And most of our patients are able to do that. Great, great to know. And uh, yeah, I didn't mean to say turn away. I think I just meant to say not recommended. That wasn't the right word. Um, Anyways, I did, I was really curious about migraines, ketamine for migraines, because this is not a topic that I had done a lot of research on or recommended. And we see a lot of chronic migraine patients I've worked with in like the DOD and VA, and that's a very common indication. In fact, it's the world's second leading cause of disability and the first leading cause of disability among young women less than 35. So even with all these therapies that are out there on the market for migraines, many, many people find that they don't uh, provide relief. Like 80% of patients fail first-line preventive therapies. Uh, even some of the newer drugs, this Amavig and uh, Mgality, these sort of newer injectable agents only have about a 50% responder rate. And even for some, the efficacy declines over time from these treatments. So their response rate actually gets worse uh, the more someone is on it. So I'm really curious about the protocols for migraine prophylaxis and what kind of benefits um, that you guys are seeing for patients that have tried it. Yeah, um, we don't necessarily uh, target migraine patients. We do have patients that come in 
that um, have a history of migraines. And we do see um, it can go either way. Sometimes people feel like they maybe get a worse migraine after ketamine. And if that happens after an infusion, we do um, offer up IV fluids that really help. And then we also have magnesium that we give through the IV. But I also hear from a lot of my patients that do suffer from migraines that migraine might be a little worse around infusions, but later on, after the infusions are complete, they don't have as many migraines. And so what we see with ketamine is it's really not a linear healing, even with depression and some of the mood disorders. Um, sometimes you can feel worse before you feel better. And we see that also with pain. We also see that with migraines. Which, you know, it makes sense, I guess, that sometimes you're right, people feel worse for they feel better is, is <laughs> comes with a lot of treatments that people try. Um, so are you collecting a data sort of response rates for uh, migraine prophylaxis or uh, is the main benefit in decreasing frequency of days or intensity of headaches? We currently are not collecting that. That's actually something that we've talked about as a leadership team. How do we expand some of these modalities? Cause we do hear from our patients, the, um, how life-changing that can be for them. And so we've actually recently talked about what do those modalities look like that we want to start collecting. Um, so we've actually thrown around the migraine idea. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll follow up in a few more uh, months or years and have a good answer to that question. I appreciate that. It's an unmet need as well as mental health is migraine therapy. So mm -hmm. I think it's really cool that you guys are offering it for migraines. What's your opinion on how ketamine compares to psilocybin mushrooms when it comes to you know treating major depression or PTSD? I'm sure this is a common question maybe because a lot of people are interested in psilocybin right now. Yeah, that's a tricky question because uh, psilocybin, I think what we're seeing in the data coming out that it is very effective. Um, the hard part for us is the length of time that psilocybin would need to be administered is a much lengthier like ad administration and recovery time where ketamine is super fast very safe once the infusion's done it typically is 10 to 15 minutes and the patient wakes up it's not like a six or eight hour experience um, but it, the data is definitely showing that it is very good now in comparison to ketamine you know if we have somebody that doesn't respond to ketamine we do typically recommend that maybe they look at doing some psilocybin treatments because we are seeing that patients that don't respond to ketamine can respond to the psilocybin and if patients are microdosing psilocybin um is that is that something you recommend or if somebody was microdosing would they still be a candidate to receive ketamine Yes and no. We just ask that maybe they only do one thing at a time so we can see which one is actually effective. It depends on how long they've been on that psilocybin, right? If they just started it, then we don't know what, which one is really helping them. Um, but we're not opposed to our patients doing both. We just also get a little concerned on what that looks like for the liver of the body and, you know, if we're taking too much at one time of anything. So, we just are a little more mindful with our follow-up with those patients. Okay. That definitely makes sense is, uh, you don't know what someone might be reacting to if they do have a bad experience. Is it the psilocybin? Is it the ketamine? I agree that always presents some uncertainty from a doctor clinician standpoint. 
especially because the psilocybin yeah, who exactly knows where they're getting it from at this point exactly exactly yeah <laughs> um so describe kind of the preparation and integration process as a patient gets ready for their session and then evaluates the experience they have when they complete a session yeah so our typical patient who's maybe not doing the um integration with one of our therapists they'll just come in and the nice thing about our clinic is um, we do have a private room for each of our patients to be able to sit in and they will be either with a nurse or a nurse practitioner for their entire infusion um, we think that that's really important because you just never know what's going on and it's the experience itself with ketamine is really anxiety producing and most of our patients are coming in with this heightened anxiety anyway and so we're able to alleviate some of that anxiety by letting them know that they're in a safe environment and well monitored so uh, the nurses, it, typically it's a 90 minute appointment. These patients come in and the first 15 to 20 minutes is just the patient and the nurse chatting about what to expect for the infusion, what the doses are. And we really want at that part for our patients to be able to communicate with us if they're having any weird sort of symptoms at home um, or if everything was great. But we want that dialogue and that trust to happen between patient and nurse. And then each room has a recliner for the patients to get nice and comfortable in. We do monitor their vitals every 15 minutes during the infusion. Um, the nurse does start an IV and we use lidocaine with all of our IV starts because we also know that there's that fear of needles with a lot of patients. Um, so we do try to do that to uh, ease that transition a little bit. And uh, once the infusion is started, we do really ask our patients to do more of an inward journey. And kind of what I mean by that is we ask our patients to set an intention because maybe sometimes those infusions might be a little deeper than what they want, or maybe it's a little anxiety producing. They're not sure where it's going. And by setting an intention prior to it, they can refocus that mind and, and be able to walk through whatever that experience is by knowing that they're safe, knowing that they maybe maybe their intention is self-love and just to learn to love themselves through those difficult moments. Um, we also encourage our patients to wear an eye mask for the infusion. Eye masks are great for two different reasons. One is it really helps to decrease the distraction so that patient can really focus inward on their own experience and not be distracted if the nurse is moving around in the room or if a bird flies by the window. Um, and then we also really like the eye mask for the fact that ketamine will make your eyes bounce around and it can cause an increase in nausea, an increase in that motion sickness. And so that eye mask really helps to decrease that because it, the eye mask that we actually have at the clinic for our patients to use is uh, it blacks out all the light, but it still allows your eyelids to open and shut. So there's not any sort of pressure on the eyelids or feeling like you're being held down by the eye mask. Um, we also have our patients listen to music through some headphones. So if they want to find their own music, that's great. Um, the music that we typically ask our patients to look for is music without lyrics, because we've found that lyrics are really triggering. Um, and even heavy instrumental playing can be very triggering. So we have a whole uh, 
like list of music that we know of just works well for patients. So if they even choose to just come in, we have everything they could ever need. We have a tablet, we have headphones, and we can help them pick that music because even picking music to some of our patients is really too much for them when they're in those deep depressive moods and they just don't even have that motivation to do anything. And then we have warm blankets at all of our clinics to help them be comforted and during the infusion. And then after the infusion, you know, it typically takes about 10 to 15 minutes for our patients to become more aware of their surroundings and feeling like they want to get up. And we have coffee and tea at all of our clinics for our patients. You know, we really want them to feel as comforting as they can in that moment. Very important that, you know, someone feels comforted in the space and they can get the most out of therapy. I really appreciate that uh, response. Just a little bit about dosing. Um, you mentioned that dosing is personalized kind of for the patient. On the website, it mentions that. Uh, it looks like looking at a lot of the studies use 0.5 milligram per kilogram. Um, I've read some people, I guess Elon Musk was talking about microdosing ketamine. Uh, he says a lot of things though, but yeah. whatever he says generates a lot of publicity because he's Elon Musk. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so how is, how, what is sort of the range or how do you determine the proper dose for someone? That's a great question. So we typically do start all of our patients off at the evidence-based medicine, like you talked about at the 0.5 megs per keg. And then we slowly build them up um as they start to come back with each infusion during that stabilization series we increase their dose until we get to sort of a, a the nurse practitioners are really great that we have here as we're starting to see changes in their scores of whether the, the depression scores of the thq9 or the gad scores or our ptsd scores of the patient as we're starting to see those improvements we might slow down a little bit on the dosing um, just because if we're starting to see improvements, why over-medicate? So we do it based off of the patient, based off of, you know, sometimes people are fast metabolizers and they require more medication. And so it is more of an individual sort of dosing that happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's really, it's really challenging. Sorry to cut you off. Like, like when you look at all the studies, they all start at that 0.5 meg per kg. But then when you start researching other ketamine clinics, I mean, the dosing just seems to be all over the place. I mean, we get transfer patients from other ketamine clinics throughout the nation who are like double what our typical highest dose is. Oh, wow. And that's where they started the patient at. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen patients who've had one or two infusions and they're at 2.5 megs per kg. And it's just... I mean, we definitely want to meet people where they're at, and especially if they have a history of other psychedelic use, you know, they might have that tolerance built up, but it's, it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky answer because it seems like there's a bunch of ketamine clinics that just believe different things because the studies all started at 0.5, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, they, that, that was just the starting point that they chose. So it's a great question, Colby. I wish there was more definitive, like what we've found in our, you know, we've done year since we began we've done about twenty-seven thousand infusions um, and we've really found that there is this narrow dosing range that seems to be super effective and ketamine is one of those things that it's like more is not always better just because you're seeing you've been seeing great results doubling down and increasing your dose by a significant amount doesn't mean that your results are gonna match right double down and be amazing so it's it's tricky 
Thank you, Sharon. Yes, um, I've actually had a discussion the other day with someone with a veteran, and she said that she finds that veterans, she has a little about ketamine, that veterans with PTSD are often requiring higher doses. I don't know if that's part of the population that's been on really high doses or whether there's any correlation there. Uh, we have not seen that in ours. Um, sometimes what I notice is maybe um, the higher dose we go, maybe a deeper or more intense experience that really is off-putting to our patients. Um, like Austin was talking about, not necessarily more is better because they'll have more side effects from it and they have more uh, intense experiences. Right. And there is, you know, Staying this for our audience, I'm sure you guys have a lot of veterans being that we're close to JBLM, which is one of the biggest military bases um, on the West Coast, is very close to Tacoma. So uh, we do have a significant veteran population here. Yeah, and we do actually do a lot of first responders who suffer from PTSD as well. And, and I don't see that they require a higher dose either. Okay, yeah, that's another population that doesn't get enough people talking about that. But a lot of first responders suffer from PTSD. Uh, ICU nurses too. Yeah. All right. For this problem, probably for Austin from a business standpoint, um, because there is a business logistical barrier, I think, for some of these clinics, not just ketamine, but psilocybin, anything that disrupts the traditional model of being able to bill insurance directly. Um, Although we're seeing a lot more even private practice doctors go away from billing insurance, there's a trend towards different methods of reimbursement. But uh, what's sort of the financial or logistical barriers that have been faced um, in running the clinic and opening the clinic, uh, particularly the one-to-one -one monitoring, providing another barrier from a cost perspective, having to pay that person to be in there, the room with the patient during the session? Yeah, I think that's a common misconception in the in like the ketamine field. You know, we hear that a lot from our patients where if you Google how much a vial of ketamine costs, it's like, whoa, why are you guys charging so much? And all the things that feed into that, right? You have the rents and the salaries and the supplies and everything that it takes to run a business. You know, the one-to-one -one model, um, it's just we've we've seen how important that is to some of our patients of having that person in the room consistently with them. Um, and a lot of ketamine clinics have, from what I've seen, have actually started to go away from that um, because of the cost that's associated with that, where you'll have a, a nurse or an LPN that's monitoring three, four patients at any given time. And of course, they don't advertise that, right? That's just, that's their normal. Um, it just is what it is. So it, it definitely adds to the one-to-one -one definitely makes it a financial barrier to making it a more affordable treatment and, and increasing the access to care. Um, luckily, you know, over the last, gosh, I think six or seven months, we've we started implementing a remote monitor option. Um, we don't offer it to new patients in their new series just because we're not sure how they're going to react to ketamine, you know, any unwanted, unwanted, excuse me, side effects. But after they complete their initial treatment, if they want, they can sign up for what other clinics do as a norm, and that's remote monitoring where one of our nurses has a maximum of two patients at the same time, and we in turn can transfer over that cost savings to the patient to bring the price down lower. For this, that for the integration session specifically or for um, 
that's for the maintenance infusion. So okay. after they go through their initial series, you know, uh, like to Sherry's point earlier, like everybody's different. Some people come in once a month. Some people come in once a year, once every two years. Um, but it's still four hundred and ninety five dollars. And that's that's a, not a small chunk of change. And so we wanted to be able to offer something that's a little bit more affordable to patients. Yes, not a not a, a non significant chunk of change. I agree. Um, do you have any other financial incentives or plans you provide uh, for patients? You know, I'm thinking maybe particular Washington Medicaid and that population. Yeah, so we don't do Medicaid. Um, they won't pay for anything, um, which is really unfortunate. And that's kind of been the problem with insurances is like you will see ketamine clinics that are in network with insurance. Um, it's really tough because insurance doesn't reimburse at a rate that can, you can really run a, a business professionally and smoothly without adding undue stress. Really, those are the models where you start to see where one nurse has three, four patients at any given time because they are accepting that lower rate on insurance. And even then, like, I've, I mean, you can, you can Google it and read all the stories of, you know, they get them in the door with, hey, we accept insurance. And then two months later, you're getting saddled with a $1,500 bill because insurance didn't end up paying what they we thought it was going to pay. Um, yeah. So we offer, we kind of have three, three different options. One, we're, we're one of the few ketamine clinics that's a pervert provider with care credit, which for us was a big move because they offer the six month interest deferred plan, which is basically a same as cash model. So we, you know, the patient doesn't pay any extra fee to use that. They basically can split whatever program they choose into six monthly payments with care credit. We also offer a lot of discounts. Like Sherry said, we have a lot of first responders, nurses, veterans, um, and we offer them a 10% discount just as kind of a show of appreciation for what they do. Um, we have a sponsorship program, which allows some of our current patients who've ex just had just l this life-saving treatment and really wanna kind of give back so they can donate to that sponsorship program. The NWKC matches that amount. And then that allows, so if we have Susie and John coming in and they just can't, you know, they applied for care credit, they got approved to a certain amount and they're, it's just not there. They can apply to that program and then that program can fund whatever the difference is of their treatment. We still have patients who maybe they're on disability or something like that and their monthly income is just really low. Um, we do allow not a pay-as-you-go plan, but kind of a pay-your-way program where they can make monthly installments payments. And then once they get up to 75%, they can begin treatment. And that's been really helpful for a lot of people to just kind of pay and build up a credit. And then, they, you know, once they're at 75%, they can come in and get the treatment started. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think you just have to get a little more creative. And I will say that, you know, we do, I don't know if Austin already talked about this, but we do create super bills. And so a lot of times those super bills that are created, the HSA accounts, people are able to withdraw those. So if they have that, that can be covered with their HSA. I was going to ask about HSA plans. Yeah, they tend to pick up the, the cost. So that's good. To, I think HSA plans are becoming a lot more common. Um, well, depending mm -hmm. on the employer, but it's it's not a bad deal. Right. I'm not here to vouch for HSA plans, but they're they're pretty good program. <laughs> if you have an employer who offers an HSA plan, I would take it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, you know, we covered the patient experience kind of on the day of infusion already in a previous question. So I might have a question about this, but I might skip it. Um, unless there's anything else, I guess, to share with 
what patients should be aware of coming in, but we can, we can come back to that later. But have you uh, experienced any negative reactions to ketamine from patients, either, you know, physical symptoms or the experience itself being too traumatic for the patient? Um, and how have these been handled? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, so there's, I typically like to tell patients that if you're doing a series of six, there's probably going to be one out of those six that is going to be a little deeper and a little more intense. And so we try to prepare them for that. And that's where we really make sure that our patients have support systems in place. And we talk about that on the call. You know, if you do experience that, you can always reach out to us. Our patients can actually direct message us through our healthy portal, which is our documentation system that we do. Um, they can call in and just get on one of the provider schedules if they have questions. Um, or we also have, like I said, our therapists that some of them choose to do that add-on integration at the end, uh, the next day when they're not feeling that great. Um, but we try to educate them that that may happen and we just talk them through it and we just try and support them the best that we can and the best that they need. And some of them just need to be able to vent and some of them need a little extra TLC. One of the long-term side effects I've heard, and maybe this repeated doses, was ketamine bladder. This is something that's I came aware of recently. Um, has this been a side effect any patients have experienced from what you uh, have? What's been reported to you? Sorry. Yeah, it. I kind of giggle at that because we do talk to patients about. It's funny, like with the infusion itself that we do even though the appointment's 90 minutes, the infusion is typically only 40 minutes. And so we encourage our patients to use the restroom beforehand, but it is almost inevitable with every single patient that they've got to use the bathroom immediately after, even though they haven't received a lot of fluids. So there is a sort of phenomenon that comes with the bladder. Um, and, you know, we've had patients that maybe couldn't, absolutely couldn't use the restroom and urinate afterwards, and maybe they needed a catheterization. And so we've We've had to help coordinate that as well. Those are really, really rare, though. Um, but we do have the capabilities to help with that if we need to. We have really respectful of your time, and we've covered a lot of ground. Any sort of closing thoughts uh, or unanswered questions you might want to share with the audience? Well, for me, I will say um, I've done a lot in the medical field. I've been in the medical field since like 2002, um, and I've been in different aspects of the hospital and that sort of thing. And this is probably the most rewarding job that I've ever had. And the reason for that is this treatment is so effective at helping people with their depression, with their anxiety, with their PTSD and chronic pain, that it's so rewarding to actually be able to physically see that person get well in front of you and to be able to communicate with them and see them happy and joyous again. Um, and so I just uh, encourage anyone who's even thinking about the possibility of ketamine, reach out to us. We, um, we would love to chat with you. We would love to help work through this and help you in any way because you don't have to live in that misery. There are other alternative medications out there. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Sherry. It's, it's such a rewarding field. It's such an effective treatment. And, you know, to anybody listening who's considering ketamine, I know there's there's so many options when it even comes to the ketamine field that if one doesn't work, you know, don't give up there and just mm -hmm. keep keep finding, looking for some, something else, something will work. Like ketamine is just such a 
wonder. I mean, it's just such an amazing drug. It really is. Yes, thank you. Thank you both, um, Austin and Sherry. And, you know, the, one of the points this podcast is try to inspire hope for people that are struggling with um, depression, PTSD, anxiety, and not finding relief from current pharmacotherapies because we know that's, and, you know, other treatment modalities because we know that's a significant population out there that uh, is scared and they're stressed and not finding that they're getting answers and solutions. And there's a lot of misinformation. So I appreciate having people that are knowledgeable about this subject on the show. And I try to provide as much information as I can as well. Um, that was Austin Rogers and Sherry Thomas, again, with Northwest Ketamine Clinics. If you were in the Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, Bellevue region, um, give them a call. If you're interested in finding out more, I will post a link to their websites in the comments. Um, as always, this podcast is presented for educational informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally listed substances. All right. Thank you for joining us again, Austin, Sherry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And, uh, Thanks, Colby. Yeah, have you back on maybe at some sure. point. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Colby.